Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Can I let you in on a little secret I've discovered? What's that? Since I've been putting tours together, I've been discovering just how many beautiful houses of worship exist here in New York. Not just cathedrals or temples, but Baptist churches, mosques, even simple early houses of worship. There are so many beautiful examples of architecture of each faith and of the past. I mean, there's an old church down in the Lower East Side that's still burnt out and partially destroyed from a huge fire. You have to wonder what other mysteries lie within its ashes. First of all, that was incredibly deep. Second off, all of that also makes me think about the secrets that were kept and covered up by all these different churches. I mean, there is a dark side to these sites. That is also very true. And that is also a very fun part of discovering the past, learning from it and of it. Because when you know better, we we do do better. better. Yes, fair point. I still don't trust anyone. Oh no, not in this world. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the hilariously disturbing show that is And to God. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Did you know that the smallest of cuts to any man's Achilles tendon will cripple a man for life? The calf muscle just rolls up the leg like a flapping window shade. This is just one of the fun facts that we learned in the dark comedy that is the focus of today's episode, Hand to God. This demented puppet show showed up on Broadway and not only shocked audiences, but had them rolling in the aisles as well. But before we can head up to the pulpit, we have to first set the groundwork. Hand to God is an irreverent puppet comedy about a possessed Christian ministry puppet. Author Robert Askins said that Hand to God is an expression about honesty. It's a Southern regionalism that's fairly unknown to the North. Hand to God premiered off-Broadway at the Ensemble Studio Theater in October of 2011 and returned in February of 2012. The show opened off-Broadway at the Lucille Laurel Theater on March 10th, 2014, directed by Moritz von Stupinagel in a MCC theater production. This is the perfect time to introduce our design team. The playwright was Robert Asking, 
Director, Moritz von Stuhlpinagel. Scenic Designer, Beowulf Borit. Costume Designer, Sidney Maresca. Lighting Designer, Jason Lyons. Sound Design by Jill B.C. Duboff. Puppet Design by Marta Joanne Eichhaugen. And Fight Director, Robert Wesley. Tyrone and his friends arrived at the Booth Theater on April 7th, 2015, where they would establish their church for 311 performances, closing their doors on January 3rd, 2016. Hand to God had a West End production which opened at the Vaudeville Theater on February 5th, 2016 and ran through June 11th, 2016. That season, the show was nominated for five Tony Awards. So, let's suit up and take our places for the puppet show. Some people flow like water on the tiny hairs of an African pilot. And when I have a child, she'll grow up so plain in the dirt and on pavement. The day ever calls where I lose my bones, giving it to habit. I'll bite my lip with a drip of red, I'll paint your perfect portrait. In an empty church basement, somewhere in Texas, where the country meets the city, a puppet stage is set up. From out of it pops a sock puppet, who proceeds to talk about the beginning of mankind, where we rutted as we chose careless in the night. Then... Some evil bastard figured out many together could kill larger things. And women figured out more food meant less babies died. So humanity started camping and started making rules about doing bad things. Then, that same motherfucker who invented the group kill invented the devil. The puppet leaves with a warning to the audience. When I have acted badly, in order that I may stay around the campfire, all I have to do is say, the devil made me do it. In the same church basement, Marjorie, a recently widowed mother, tries to teach a puppet class with a group of three clearly disinterested teenagers. Jessica, a nerdy and downbeat young woman, Timothy, a horny and expletive-spouting young man, and Jason. Marjorie's introverted son. Of the three, only Jason and Jessica have brought their puppets, and Jason is the only one who has finished his, a sock puppet named Tyrone, the same one from the opening monologue. After Marjorie grows tired of Timothy's interruptions, she sends Jason and Jessica out in order to have a private talk with Timothy. Timothy promptly reveals his sexual infatuation with Marjorie, which she awkwardly and bluntly rejects. Before Timothy can do any more, Pastor Greg, a middle-aged preacher at the church, walks in, cueing Timothy's exit. Pastor Greg, who is clearly infatuated with Marjorie, though not quite as much as Timothy, invites the puppet class to perform in front of the entire church next Sunday. Marjorie awkwardly accepts. Outside on the playground, Jessica and Jason hang out on the swings. Jason has a rather obvious crush on Jessica, who is fascinated by Jason's constant use of Tyrone. Jason, hoping to impress her, performs an excerpt from Who's on First with Tyrone. 
when his approach to impressing her resorts to lying that he made up the skit, Tyrone, as if on his own, calls Jessica stupid for not knowing the skit and revealing that Jason thinks she's hot. After a brief moment where Jessica and Jason are considering that this fact is in the air, Tyrone comes to life once more and begins telling Jessica about how Jason thinks about you before Jason finally tears the puppet off. Jessica, embarrassed and more than a little scared, leaves. In the car on the way home, Jason tries to tell Marjorie that he no longer wants to do the puppet class, which she refuses to listen to. It is clear to the audience the relationship has turned dysfunctional since the death of Jason's father from a heart attack earlier in the year. Despite Marjorie's insistence, Jason refuses to continue with the puppets, demonstrating this by ripping his puppet's head off and in half. Marjorie, hysterical, kicks an apologetic Jason out of the car. The next day, Marjorie waits in the puppet classroom for her students, but none appear. Pastor Greg enters and tries to comfort her and subsequently reveals his lust for her. Marjorie, who is still dealing with the problems at home, gently rejects him, which he does not take well, leaving her alone. Frustrated, she starts destroying parts of the classroom when Timothy enters with his puppet. After witnessing Marjorie's destructive rampage, he joins in on her command, their actions becoming increasingly sexual before they give in to their urges and engage in, a, in violent intercourse. Jason is woken up in the morning by Tyrone, who has been sewn back together and had teeth added to his mouth. Tyrone, angered by Jason tearing him in half, harasses Jason for his dreams of a happy life and hope to live like his dad. Tyrone claims that Jason's father was miserable and ate himself to death because he resented his child. He convinces Jason to return to the church and tell everyone exactly what he thinks of them and to act rude to Jessica so she will like him. Jason, with little choice, agrees. Pastor Greg returns to the classroom to find it in shambles. As Marjorie and the students enter, she denies any knowledge, though Timothy is insistent on reminding Marjorie it happened. While waiting for Marjorie to find her scripts, Tyrone proceeds to threaten Timothy, who gradually becomes aware something odd is going on. Jessica enters and Tyrone proceeds to bluntly flirt with her. Marjorie leaves the classroom, prompting Timothy to harass Jessica, causing Tyrone to come to her defense, which Jessica assumes is Jason trying to be nice. However, Tyrone takes it to a whole new level, calling out Timothy for his insecurity and jerkiness, telling him to run off. Timothy, feeling bold, reveals to Jason he had sex with his mother. An enraged Tyrone attacks Timothy, biting off his ear against Jason's own pleas. Marjorie and Pastor Greg run in to see the commotion, and Marjorie insists the devil's got him. Tyrone confirms this by causing an overhead lamp to abruptly burn out, and the congregation flees from the classroom, leaving Jason alone with Tyrone. Act 2 brings us to the congregation after having sewn Timothy's ear back on, trying to figure out their next move. Marjorie insists on exorcism, and they can all go home. 
but Jessica and Pastor Greg believe calling the police is the better option. Marjorie rejects this course of action, worried that they will take Jason away from her. Pastor Greg decides to take it upon himself to confront the boy. Back in the basement, Tyrone apparently, with Jason's help, has turned the room into his own personal hell with graffiti, torn up posters, mutilated stuffed animals, and crucified dolls. After a conversation with Jason, Tyrone refuses to reveal if he really is the devil or not. Instead, claiming that every action one can easily pin on the devil was really done by Jason, even the light bulb turning off by himself. Pastor Greg arrives and tries to appeal to Jason by explaining he is trying to help his mother. Tyrone seizes the opportunity to reveal that Marjorie and Timothy had sex, and a horrified Pastor Greg stumbles out of the classroom back towards his office. Timothy finds Marjorie alone in the office, and despite the pain of having lost his ear, still insists on his love for Marjorie. Relenting, Marjorie agrees to sleep with him one more time, but their tryst is interrupted, first by Jessica, who is looking for the keys to Marjorie's car to get the rest of the puppets, second by Pastor Greg. Upon seeing this, Marjorie rejects Timothy once more. Angered, he leaves, insisting he will tell everyone about her. Pastor Greg, disgusted, goes to call the police, claiming he cannot keep Marjorie around if this is what she does. Marjorie finally snaps, calling out Pastor Greg for his lame attempt at a come-on and shouting about Jason not being there for her after her husband's death and instead talking to a puppet. She tears pages out of Pastor Greg's Bible, complaining that not even the church has helped her with her troubles. After finally letting out all her repressed anger, she decides she is better off going to the police. Pastor Greg, however, has another idea. Jason and Tyrone are still in the basement, but Jason is starting to grow restless being alone with his puppet. Tyrone's attempt to convince him otherwise is interrupted by Jessica coming in through the window with her puppet, a buxom character complete with button breasts named Jolene. Tyrone and Jolene proceed to engage in highly vocal sex. Jessica uses the distraction to finally get through to Jason and asks him out to homecoming before leaving as Pastor Greg and Marjorie enter. Pastor Greg has Marjorie talk to Jason directly. She tries to apologize for all her actions while talking over Tyrone's name-calling. Eventually, Tyrone grows so angry that he accuses Marjorie of killing my father, which causes Jason to go silent before he, as himself, angrily blames Marjorie for his father's death and tells her to leave, which she does reluctantly. Pastor Greg leaves with a warning to Jason that he needs to choose whether he or Tyrone gets to leave this room. Jason, alone once again, decides he has had enough of Tyrone's influence and tries to remove the puppet from his hand. Tyrone, however, attacks his puppeteer, calling him ungrateful for his help. After a lengthy struggle, Jason finally removes the puppet from his hand. Thinking he has defeated the devil, he then grabs a towel and tries to treat the finger that Tyrone bit. However, Tyrone shows up again inside Jason's towel and once again tries to kill his puppeteer. 
Jason finally manages to restrain Tyrone to a table and grabs a hammer to try to bludgeon the puppet to death. But Tyrone keeps reviving with each blow. With no other apparent choice, Jason turns the hammer around and prepares to slam the claw of the head straight into his hand. Before he can do this, Marjorie returns, sees what he's doing, and tries to stop him, resulting in her own hand getting impaled by the claw of the hammer. Jason, horrified by what he has done, runs to help his mother, and Tyrone does not revive when he handles the towel again. As the two leave the basement arm-in-arm for a hospital, Marjorie insists Jason tell her if Tyrone comes back, and she will be there for him. In epilogue, however, Tyrone emerges one last time from the shadows without Jason's help, now much larger and more demented-looking than before. He mocks the audience for wanting to see him again, because that's what people want to do with the devil. You want him and then you want him to go away. This resulted in humanity shifting the blame for their demons by killing the innocent like sheep, lambs, and babies before finally settling for killing the sweetest guy, Jesus. And humanity spends the last thousand years solving their problems by putting horns on them and watching their saviors burn. He disappears with one last warning to the audience. The thing about a savior is you never know where to look. Might just be the place you saw the devil before. The The end. end. And it will be signed by my hand, scratched out by a man who envies the time spent to self-reflect on all the self-destruction, all the stupid stuff I do. Just to try and understand my place is not ready-made microwave safe. Why try and comprehend why I'm so fixed and bent on making the same mistakes now is the time where we discuss the parts we liked and maybe needed more work. But before we get into that, wow, it's good to be back. Hey, it's nice to see you <laughs> on the other side of the table there. Right? Hello. I forgot what you look like when we're recording the show. <laughs> it's been a while. It has been a hot minute. We've just been a little busy. Yes. you've Since the last time we've recorded, you have moved shows twice. It's been an incredible year so far, but we're back. And what a show to be back on, hand to God. Right. Well, and you know what's interesting about doing religious plays or religious shows in general is you and I both have very different backgrounds when it comes to religion. We do. Very different. So we both get very different points of view coming out of it. And I guess at this point, if you haven't noticed, we're just... We've said hello back to all of you, and it's good to be back. And we're just going to go ahead and move back into the story, because that's really what I want to talk about. This is such a fun show. And I I was raised Southern Baptist, and the show, being in Texas, it, it, it reads Southern Baptist. So I am, like, eating this up like a hot fudge sundae, because I'm like, yep, there's all the Baptist-isms. And you don't have quite that same lived experience, which makes it fun for afterwards discussion because I see Easter eggs that I can then pass on to you. But also there's an outside perspective that I'll never be able to have because of my lived experience that you then turn around and offer and I go, oh, I didn't see it that way. So when we get to go see shows that are steeped in religion, it's so much fun. Even when it's a raucous comedy like this, there's still so much to get because I think we'll both agree the best comedy, I mean, comedy obviously lies in truth, is based on truth. So, you know, 
if you gave the 30 second elevator pitch of the show involving a puppet, a demonic satanic puppet and a church puppet troop, about, you know, it, you don't know how much substance can be there, but there really was a lot of substance in this. And I think that's what made the show so successful is it wasn't just about Tyrone, the puppet. It really was about everybody else and exposing Honestly, how horrible everyone was. There was no good person in the show. Right. Well, and I think it just kind of goes to say that really there's this idea that people hide behind their churches and they sit there and go, well, I go to church. That makes me a good person. Right. And this show goes, look at all these people in a church. Aren't they terrible people? Look at all the things happening in the closet. Like, oh, yeah. And... This story, this show did not go where I thought it was going to go. Truly. Like, when we got to the end of Act 1, I was like, what? (laughs) And when she's yelling the word exorcism, I was like, we don't have that. (laughs) That's not a thing. What are you talking about? It blew my mind. And I was sitting there. And keep in mind, this is 2015. This is eight years ago. This is going to demonstrate how the narrative and the conversation has changed. And I'm sitting there, and because things were so chaotic, I was thinking to myself, well, is this a possession? Or is this mental illness? And that, for me, was like one of the first times that that kind of thing crept in, where I was like, are we making a commentary on mental illness, or are we mocking possession? Because that's when it started, the con- the bigger conversation regarding mental illness started creeping in. It was nowhere near what it is today. Eight years ago, you know, we, we, everyone knew the words depression and we kind of started recognizing it like, yeah, it's depression, but it's not like today where we're all very forward and like mental health positive, but that's another tangent. So I was sitting there going, I'm not entirely sure what state of mind we're here in, but I'm living for it. And the writing was so smart because we left act one at like an eight and there was still room to build all the way to that end with the hammer. Did not see that part coming. You know what I mean? I was like, oh yeah. And everyone in the audience just screamed, like, oh, you know. It was so intense, but it went somewhere. And then we also had a nice resolution a moment for all of us to collectively take a breath after that insanity. So we didn't just finish at that high point and leave the theater and go, I have all this tension built up. We got a moment of release as well after. So that was really, really smart acting and writing. The other thing I really loved was the puppetry. Now, this was no like Avenue Q puppet design or anything like that. It, it was a sock puppet. you know. And I don't want to take away from the puppet design by any stretch of the imagination. Tyrone is an iconic sock puppet. But it, it was a sock puppet. But that being said, and I've said this to people, anyone who's involved with puppetry... It is not a matter of putting something on your hand and then talking. There is a million things that go into it. And one of the things that I learned when we were training for Avenue Q was, you know, about the whole, you have to look at the puppet when it's speaking, when you want the audience to look at it and things like that. Basically you have, you, the puppeteer have to give it life or the audience will never see it. So I've noticed that when I've seen shows that are a little less professional where the puppet and the actor are looking out and I'm like what am I supposed to look at which one of you there's four eyes up there I don't know which I'm you know so the the actors who are using puppets 
mainly Jason, did a brilliant job of helping us recognize and creating that extra character on stage of Tyrone and then later of Jolene. You know, mm-hmm. that was really, really smart and that was really, really amazing. I think also the humor was spot on. I think we could agree on that. Yeah. Definitely. Even though it was chaotic and it was crazy, the humor. I mean, we had great jokes. Like, hoping it could just be smoothed over. I was waiting for the line about either cupcakes or a casserole that can just smooth everything over. It, the humor was great. Ultimately, I do think also that the, the message behind the story was really important. And again, like you mentioned, being from two different backgrounds, even though we have that, I think we both got the same message out of it, which was, you know, the hypocrisy of religion yeah. sometimes, you know, and... and kind of calling it out absolutely it's a lot easier to blame someone else for your your downfalls it's a lot harder to be like oh i messed up that's me so well why don't we go ahead and dive i've missed them but let's go ahead and just dive into our little boxes shall we boxes Uh, so now it's okay for you to sing about them but not okay for me listen i was making a pop culture reference all right, well, I'm not up with the youths. But <laughs> let's start with our lovely set. I loved the set. It it fit that perfect feel, that mood of a small, mid-sized town, Baptist church kind of basement can thing. You t- can I tell you what it made me think of? Yeah. The basement in King of the Hill for the church. Yes. Yes. With Manger Babies. Yes, it was totally yes. Manger Babies. Yes. Oh my God, I didn't even think about that. I yeah. thought you were going to say Dale's basement. I didn't see No, the, no, no. Manger th- Babies. That's amazing. I love that. The detail for me was amazing. The decay and dirt and grime everywhere was wonderful. So you could see like this was an older church. And I want to say like lived in, you know, like it was lived cared in. for, but it wasn't, you know, it was an older church. I also love the simple touches that were used to transform into the other places, like the pastor's office, the bedroom, the swings, the car. Like, it it was just very, like, we just brought in a desk. We moved a wall. You know, look, we're recording this in 2023, so hindsight's 2020. But it reminded me a lot of Kimberly Akimbo, truth be told. Yeah. Where we had that base set, that big space, you know, the school essentially, or the rink, if you will. But then like the walls could open up and boom, there's a whole other place. You know, Kimber's bedroom or the basement or what have you. Right. I wonder if it's a booth theater thing. Could be because both shows, you know, did play there, do play there. Um, For some reason, the chairs stood out to me. Like, I guess I just remember them maybe from like my childhood. I don't know. Like I, when I look back at pictures, I was like, oh yeah, those are definitely the same ones I'm remembering in my mind. And I'm just like, yeah, those were the church chairs, those plastic chairs with the uh, the vertical holes in the back. Uh-huh. And I was like, yep, those are the ones. And I also love that the puppet theater was so homemade in church. And look, now that you've mentioned King of the Hill with the manger babies thing, I'm told that's all I can see in my mind now. But it was like an old refrigerator box with some leftover fabric and glue and glitter. Like, fabulous. It just, it felt so real. It did not feel like a... Broadway set with all the flashbangs. It just felt like someone's basement. Like Marjorie put it together. Yep. <laughs> herself. Right. Well, and I think kind of piggybacking off of that, everything felt so real. The costumes, the costumes felt very realistic of what people would be wearing. It wasn't like, 
oh, this is, you know, what so-and-so would have worn. It was legitimately, it just, it felt right. It felt normal. It felt real. Yeah, it was simple but effective. And it got, it, it, it gave us that sense of the small Texas town Bible Belt look. You know, jeans, t-shirt. Even the pastor was, you know, in, in the short sleeve dress shirt with the tie. So in my mind, I need you to know that when I think of my memories of this show, I transpose things into it. So King of the Hill is obviously in the Manger Babies is what I remember from what the set looks like. But then the character of Pastor Greg looks like the pastor from Letterkenny. (laughs) (laughs) It's what my brain is remembering him looking like. No, no, because it's played by Kudish, Mark Kudish. That's right. Who was a nine, who we, before this all nine to five. So I thought you were going to bring that character in. And I was like, I mean, okay. No, no, no. no. 100% my brain transposes the letter Kenny Pastor. I can't remember his name because I think his name is also Pastor Greg. I could be wrong. Oh, that would be too funny. But back to the costumes, I appreciate that they didn't try to make them a caricature or a stereotype, you know, with like huge hair or these crazy patterns, like being really that crazy church going folk, you know, Mm -hmm. it was very, it was real. And also I liked that this show didn't, like it didn't read of a time. It never said it was of the time, but it also doesn't say like the time is now. We could have been anywhere between... Late 70s to early 2000s. Oh, no, no. It was modern. It was modern. It was definitely modern. It was, okay. It was in the 2000s of some sort, but they didn't, with the costume and with the design, it didn't limit itself to be like within a certain like year or two. The, the range was much bigger. So like if it were to be done now, mm-hmm. I think it still would fall in that, that wide enough category that the costuming would read. It could be today. Does that make sense? Yes, that does. Yeah. So I want to go on to the lights now. Once again, very simple, but highly effective. I love that the lighting helped to become another embodiment of Tyrone. Like, yes. this is where the rails go off, the, the or the train goes off the, the rails here. You know, like, the whole time we're seeing Tyrone and we think it's just an extension of... Jason, where we're like, okay, so it's it's kind we're of like, the voice yeah, that we're like, he can't it's say obviously, on his own. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, like weird things start happening, and it's like, well, what are we dealing with here? And it all starts with the lights, and that's where things really start to get fun and cool. And to make it, cle- it was clever and somewhat shocking, but it's still in a humorous way, like. These effects, you know, having the light burn out and even like having the, the colors that they did when the, the basement becomes Tyrone's own personal hell and everything, you know, having the, the darker lights because ultimately like the room's lights are off, you know. Yeah. It's, it's a great use of like, oh yeah, it's setting the mood, but we still had an element of comedy to it. You know, it, it was still, I, don't, I, I can't put my finger on it because I'm not a lighting designer. But for whatever reason, the way that the, the palette, I guess, existed still gave way to the to some form of lightheartedness that I was like, oh, yeah, it's still a comedy. It's not so heavy that it's going to be, you know, versus something like Grey House or Sweeney where it's always super dark and you're like, yeah, this is heavy. This was like, OK, crazy things happen, but also it's a puppet. 
Like, right, like at the end of the day, this, this it's a puppet. Yeah. And when I mentioned the palette, I should say that I did like the palette, the wonderful use of bright whites and soft blues for inside the church, and then, you know, soft yellow, soft whites for outside, and then those gorgeous blues and reds for the darker moments in the church. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it was so good. The colors were, they, they just read really well. Well, and one of my favorite moments was the juxtaposition of having, like, the giant Tyrone with the black in the background. Yes. Yes. I, oh. That, you know, let's just dive into the next box. It's, it leads to that. It's the direction. I thought the brill, the direction was so brilliant from end to end. It gave us enough of that phantasmic part of the theater we want well, to make it that that spectacle that so, it was so what with it, keeping it still a good story. Right. Well, because I think what they really did is we were able to exist in both the linear and non-linear space in our brain while seeing it come to life. You know yes. what I mean? So like we had the actual real place where this was taking place, but then Tyrone existed in multiple spheres. Well, he lived he lived in a abstract sphere as well as a realistic sphere. Well, that's the interesting thing about the story. I think that's what's really brilliant about this director is let me ask you and see if you caught it too. Who's telling the story? Tyrone. Yeah. Tyrone is telling the story. And yet, and yet because he's the one that starts it, he's the one that ends it. But in those two moments, it's in the like non-linear world. It's almost like a narrator, if you will, right? So when we get all the human characters that come in, we completely subconsciously check out of the idea that Tyrone is the one steering the ship and telling the story. When in reality, when you, when you finish and you leave, what you really just saw didn't happen in real time. More, it was a memory. And right. that's why we're able to bounce between the here and now and the past. Like time can exist in different places because it is a memory and it's Tyrone's memory. And that's what I loved is I left and I was like, I thought this was Jason's story. It's oh, not. no, 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 no. This is all about Tyrone, which is also smart with the marketing, which is smart. Just every facet of the show, the fact that it's all centered around Tyrone. I just thought it was the gimmick because, yeah, it's the sock puppet. But then I'm like, no, that's really, really smart because it's... It's all about him. So that was just brilliant direction, taking that script, looking at it and going, okay, we're going to make sure that at any moment where heightened action is occurring, he's got to be somewhere to know about it and to help kind of lead the horse to water. I also thought the director did a great job of marrying his own ideas with the vision of those of the designers. Everything just worked in concert brilliantly it was a and then with that there was brilliant execution with the actors and creating these dynamic characters that existed on the stage there was brilliant balance whether it be among the actors on stage you didn't have characters that were similar but also the you had the straight and the chaotic balancing each other out very well especially when the chaos started going and with that the balance of humor and drama and the darkness of the play were really well balanced so that they everything really got emphasized even more. It was a comedy. At the end of the day, it is a comedy, but there were some dark and heavy moments in there. And we were able to use those as kind of a oh, moment from the comedy. Because if you're just yes. laughing for 120 minutes or 90 minutes or however long, I think it was a one act. So if you're just laughing the entire time. No, it's a two act. I was like, yeah, there's a two act. If you're laughing the entire time, like... 
it's not as enjoyable because it has to keep going somewhere. So to be able to go on that wave of rises and falls and, you know, allows everything to, to be a little more enjoyable, a little bit more juicy. So I love that. Definitely. Also, the pacing was so good. It was like a great soap opera. We continue to be fed these little nuggets of the character secrets and desires and we're putting the puzzle together as the pot itself begins to boil over and become uncontrollable it was like masterful like look we've we have told the story now on the show and you and i have seen it i've reread the play so like the cat's out of the bag but i remember seeing it for the first time and yeah you're literally starting to solve the puzzle you start putting some pieces together and you're like uh, someone called Mariska Hargitay. I don't like what's happening between these two and something might happen between... Oh, and you better watch the... You know, you can start to see the what-ifs start to happen so that when the shoe does drop, you're like, I can't believe that happened. So then, does that mean this is gonna... Oh, and you start finishing sentences and then the play is just rolling down the hill and you're chasing it in the best way. Well, and so... I think what really gets into the show for me and the meat and potatoes of, I think honestly it's the script of it, mm-hmm. is we've talked about how, you know, is this Tyrone's story? Is this Jason's story? And I think the whole show is really, it is, I interpret it as Tyrone is God. So what if we had a, what kind of world exists when you have a vengeful God? right? What kind of things play out? And so Tyrone, being the god of his world, is the puppet master, and the people are his puppets. And what happens, you know, when you get those different beliefs start to creep in, and what kinds of chaos can they create in that world? And so I think that, you know, there can be a lot of interpretation to be able to be had as to why this story, what is this story, and what effect does it have. And I think that that's a fun place to take it. I didn't think about that. That's interesting. Now you've given me something to stew over. Ha 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 ha! It's like we have a podcast that makes you talk about the show. You get out of here with that crazy talk. (laughs) Except we won't be on a hiatus for six months again, though. (laughs) The show has had several notable performers, including Bob Saget, Mark Kudish, Sarah Stiles, Geneva Carr, and Stephen Boyer. talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history let's start with the theatrical impact first and i don't get to say this often which i love and i'm we're gonna get to say this more which i also love it was a great it is a great new american play and i have to say that's something that i i couldn't believe this like as i was putting the script together i was like that feels weird and I had to go back into our theater journals. And I was like, no, I'm sure we've seen another new American play before this. No. Well, I mean, 
because of me, I am at fault. Hi, my name's Andrew, and I had a problem, but I overcame it. We didn't really see plays until, you know, 2010, 2011. And there weren't a ton of great new American plays that would get done, or at least that we were seeing. But this was a new American, this great new American play. And I can say with assurance that as we go forward, we did start seeing more of that that came in and a lot more, especially off Broadway. But I, that just took me back and I was like, huh? So, I mean, look, if we were to go off the path, I would like to, I, you know, I'd love to see how many Broadway plays each year are American works, new American works, I should say. But that's a, that's an off the beaten path. Let's do that another show. Right. Well, and I think in addition to having, you know, a show that's about puppets and having that kind of be entered into the catalog of American theater, I think that this show, the theatrical impact of having a, a snapshot of American ch- church culture is something that's like of a form of American church culture, yes, not a, just America. I mean, it's it's a it's a side, right? But in in the grand scheme of things, of thinking about why we tell stories, right? One of those things is plays exist to hold record of the way that we lived, right? And so, looking back on this show, almost ten years later, woof. <laughs> Thinking back to when this show was written and where we are now, we've come a very long way from where we were culturally with this, but then also in a lot of ways we haven't changed. And so the effect that it can exist as a snapshot of American theology, I think is also a great theatrical impact because think about someone doing a revival of this in 30, 40 years. Yeah. And I bet we don't have to wait that long to see a revival of it, though. So moving on to societal impact, I would say that the themes and ideas discussed in this show were very important, especially for the time. Dealing with the idea of a wolf in sheep's clothing, inappropriate sexual relationships, and the difficulty boys have in expressing feelings and ideas. Three great... I don't like. I don't want to say fables, but like lessons, kind of thing, right there. Three topics that we need to talk about. You had the pastor who was the wolf in sheep's clothing, preying on the mom, the inappropriate relationship between mom and Timothy, and then, like I said, Timothy and Jason both not knowing how to express emotions about different things. Well, and even to some extent as well, mom not knowing how to properly express her emotions. The only person who was well adjusted as far as emotions go was. Jessica. Jessica, and even then, she was a teenage adolescent But she was girl. seen as odd, is the thing. Yeah. She was almost adjusted, but she was seen as odd, and it's like... But she's the I most well-adjusted one. Well, and I would, I would agree to mom to a certain point, but I think society is more forgiving, even then, of mom. You know, single mother, trying her best, just can't get things together, you know? Society forgives it, but society has not, even now caught up to teaching boys how to express themselves and emote and feel and giving them the tools to deal with that. Right. And I think this show points out the dangers of that. You know, Jason's using Tyrone, 
as the way out and Timothy is having inappropriate relationships and is very outspoken in distracting and destructive ways. You know, I, I think that that is a societal impact because even now all of those things still exist. So then I think now is the time to ask the question, is this show still relevant? Though this is a very dark show, it is still a comedy, and I think the story and message is one that is still timeless. It is a perfect show and has been very successful in regional, collegiate, and community houses. As for Broadway, I would say yes, the show is relevant still. The key, I think, is finding the right season where this dark comedy would balance out the other important works being done. So I definitely think this show is relevant. I think the show should be being done in regional houses and even college campuses. But I don't think that it is time for a Broadway revival just yet. And it is purely because there are other stories and louder voices that Broadway needs right now. And I think that for this show to be done as a revival, it needs to be done within, with the thought in mind of reflection, of seeing where we were and where we are now. And so I think we need at least another 10 years before we revive this show. I don't think we need that long. But I, we can I, agree can, agree, dis- I can agree with the first part of that. <laughs> we can agree to disagree. Shirt coming soon. see through your eyes, but I can try. But it won't make any difference, no, it makes no difference Cause a day wastes like paper airplanes in the morning Falling wet cause it's been raining, it's pouring Yeah, you always get what you decided to take Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show So we did have the good fortune of getting to see the show once back in 2015. And actually, the first memory I want to share isn't actually one that we were there for, but it's an iconic memory that is associated with the show. And it's a huge compliment to just how real the set was. Now, we've all heard stories about bad audience behavior, right? Someone takes a phone call during a show. People are talking. You have people opening candies in the middle of a song. Don't do that. (laughs) But this particular one, I remember we were back in Salt Lake and it came across my phone on like one of the Broadway headline things. An audience member, before the show started, got up on the stage with their phone charger and went up to go plug their phone into the outlet to charge their phone. And when they went to go plug it in like their phone charger went through the wall because it's not a real outlet. (laughs) Right. It's painted on, you know. And, of course, you know, the wall was damaged. I'm sure they had to pay so that it could get repaired. But all I could think was, it's a Broadway thing. In what world do you think it's okay to just get up on stage and go charge your phone? Like, what was that audience member's plan in the long run when the show started like to stop in the middle of act one oh excuse me taro can you pass me my phone man like what right so i i just remember read that and i mean look it's not as shocking to me now given some of the things that have happened but like this was god smacking back in 2015 it was like 
What? What? We don't do that. That's not a thing. Oh. Now back to our experiences. <laughs> so I remember us really enjoying the show, obviously. But really the only other memory I have is, is it was really fun to meet the cast afterwards. They were all really great. I do remember Mark Kudish leaving on his motorcycle at a Schubert Alley. But the biggest one that I, I just kind of walked away with is Stephen Boyer, who played Jason. You know, it was cool to meet him then. And, of course, that was eight years ago. Flash forward eight years. Guess who's back at the booth? And now he's playing the dad in Kimberly Akimbo. Right. I definitely, that was the first time we saw Kimberly Akimbo and we saw him. I was like, oh, hey, he's from Hand to God. It was so weird to see him with a mustache. I was like... Ooh, you grew up. You grew up so much. <laughs> but it's so cool. I love the versatility of Stephen Boyer that he's, you know, can do both plays and musicals. He's so great. But yeah, he was fantastic. He was so nice. Everyone was so nice. So it was cool to meet them. You'll be able to catch Hand to God, hopefully at a theater near you sometime soon. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap those candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Cud Eastbound and Billy Murray. <laughs>